So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing Playing With with Science. Science. Today we are going to smash it, ace it, chip it, and lob it. And remember, when it's out, it's out. Unless, of course, Hawkeye says otherwise. We are certainly talking about tennis, a sport that has its origins in the 12th century and patronized by none other than King Henry VIII back in the 15th century when he wasn't getting married and chopping off heads. You yeah. Know. Uh, busy back, man. Yeah, busy man. Back then it was actually called real tennis as in real or royal. Yeah, for sure. And helping us keep it real is a rising star of U.S. men's tennis, Jared Donaldson. And breaking down the physics is our good friend, astrophysicist Charles Liu. Yes, and we're also going to be getting the lowdown on on the evolution of the tennis racket. Um, did you like that? I yeah, said I did. evolution. I know, I, I like from that. You. Thank you. That's I right. Know. Yeah. But that's for later. Right now, why don't we welcome in our first two guests, uh, Jared Donaldson and astrophysicist Chuck Liu. Guys, how are you? Great to do. How about everyone else? That's ah, cool. It's very right. good. Great to have you. Um, why don't we jump into, we'll start uh, with Jared. You are uh, nationally ranked. You are, um, I've seen you play, and you're known as perhaps the answer to the vacuum left by Roddick. Does that put pressure on you, man? Um, well, I'm, I would say I'm considered one of the answers, not the only, not the only one. There's a lot of great, uh, young U S men's tennis players out there. Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of very good established men's tennis players out there as well. Um, but you know, I get asked that question quite a lot as I'm sure other, the other, other players do. And for me personally, um, obviously it's really, it's obviously really special that I'm uh, thought of in, in those terms, but for me, I didn't start playing tennis um, because I, you know, there was a hole in, in American tennis. You know, obviously when I was when I first started, Roddick was the best uh, American tennis player. So I, I started playing tennis because I really enjoyed it. I loved it, and I wanted to wanted to be a great tennis player. So um, obviously, it's cool to be thought of in those terms, but that's not uh, my priority. What got you into the sport? Because, you know, there's a lot of other sports out there to get into. You were a guy where you're six foot two, you're well built. So you could have taken a choice of other sports. But why tennis? Um, you know, that's a great question. I actually got myself started in tennis. Mm-hmm. My mom 
my mom brought me and my little sister up to the country club every morning in Rhode Island. I wandered over to the tennis courts one day. And, um, and obviously, so that's kind of how I got my start in tennis. But uh, I played almost every single sport you could think of. And, um, you know, tennis kind of, gra I gravitated towards tennis just for the simple fact that it was an individual sport. And I guess selfishly, I liked when I got the credit. And also I liked when I got the blame, but not, I didn't want to get the blame for losing, but you know, because it was all on me, I didn't have to rely on teammates or anything like that. I wanted to rely only on myself. So that's kind of, and the competitive nature of one-on-one -on -one really attracted me to tennis. So Do you know I guess where I've heard the, that story before. Yeah, that's a, well, go ahead. Roger Federer. Yeah. Roger Federer was a talented young soccer player and he didn't like it when his team lost because it wasn't down to him. Yeah. So he went to tennis because when it lost, it was him. When it won, it was him. Exact same words out of this young man's mouth. Yeah. It's what it's about. I control my destiny. We're going to try and go through different compartments of a player's game, and where better to start yeah. with the serve? So, Jared. Now, one of the things that I noticed is the mechanics of the serve looks pretty much the same for every tennis player. I might be wrong because I'm not like a coach, and I, but the actual mechanics you see every single player, male or female regardless of height they kind of go through the same mechanics so can you yeah. break down the mechanics of a serve and and why why is it why are those the mechanics that you see every single player uh kind of serve in the same way tennis is a very technical sport um so and i think that kind of you know you see everyone play similar on tv and there's a reason for that mm -hmm. um obviously you see slight differences maybe in in certain ways people take the racket back uh, on the serve, some some people bring the foot up uh, to get their feet closer together. Some people, such as myself, stay back with their foot. Uh -huh. uh, but there are certain things in a serve that every great or, or good server ha has to do in order to hit a good serve. And that's from contact, uh, just before contact point to after contact point, which is really important. Obviously, for a serve, you need a good ball toss, not too far out in front of you. I've, I've always, uh, a coach told me, uh, right above your eyes, which makes sense. I think that's a that's a really good uh, uh, tool um, in terms of in terms of where to place it. Uh, you don't want it too far out in front because then you have to lean forward. You want it right above your eyes so you can go up after it and get it and hit and hit down on the ball with spin. Um, so I think that's the most important of how you can hit the ball. Um, at contact point because everybody hits every great player hits the ball at contact point the same way for take backs obviously there are slightly different variations Roddick obviously had a very short motion um, I have a little bit of a longer motion but um, honestly it's it's where it's right before contact and right after contact because you need to get the spin to quickly bring the ball down into the court Chuck Luke can you break down the physics of what um we just heard so many fun things to talk about okay. fundamentally what you're doing is using every joint you can to provide as much of a flip a lever and hinge in order to send as much force as you can to the ball through the racket so your wrists have something to do with it your elbow your shoulder even down low your legs depending on how you kick off the ground with your toes or with your feet or your knees every little extra hinge you can pop in there gives a little more force to the ball uh, I often think of Pete Sampras as the person a great American tennis player uh, that sort of 
made the serve a devastating weapon beyond what anybody else had seen up to that point. His economy of motion, the way that he was able to leverage power from the rest of his body into the ball through the racket was just a beautiful sight to see. And here's a piece of uh, reference you can use. Uh, if you think about uh, in baseball, uh, a hundred mile an hour fastball is so fast. Mm-hmm. A batter has to almost start swinging before the ball leaves the pitcher's hand. Right now, these days, uh, serves in tennis will reach 150 miles an hour. Yep. Which wow. means that, yeah, for a person reacting to a tennis serve, it's as if the person receiving was looking at a 120 mile an hour fastball. You just don't have any time to react. Not to mention that the strike zone isn't just the width of the plate. It's 13 feet wide. So your ability to react to a devastating, powerful serve is really, really limited. And so you are counting on that serve as a way to really set dominance on any given point uh, when you're playing tennis. I, I never, I, I did not know that. So, Jared, how do you, when you're going up against what Chuck just said, somebody who has like this devastatingly, um, you know, high velocity serve, mm. What is your mindset when you're on the receiving end of a great serve, uh, and how do you react to it? What's going through your mind as a player? Chuck definitely brings up a good point when he talks about the speed, which is very difficult to handle. Um, But I think for any professional tennis player, uh, when you're talking about serve, um, as as, uh, obviously as Chuck just said, when they hit the ball uh, 130, 140, or even some of the guys 150, and they hit their spot, it's almost impossible to return it. It just is. Um, you, unless you're guessing, and at that point, um, you're going to be 50-50 anyways, probably, unless you have some sort of read on the serve. But most guys now, they toss, they toss the ball in the same spot to, to hit every serve. So that's difficult. Um, but honestly, it's, 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 it's a lot about location. Uh, no matter how fast, obviously, if you can serve the, if you can hit a serve very fast and have great location, I mean, it's it's th- those are the best servers in the in the world. Hmm. Um, and it also depends on how tall the your opponent is. Um, so so as uh, as Chuck pointed out, Sampras Sampras wasn't a guy who was six ten, six eight, six six. He was my height, six two, maybe six one, a little bit shorter than me. So he had a great serve without the added um, advantage of being so tall. And, you know, you combine power and, and accuracy. I mean, that, that's when you're talking about one of the best serves in the game. And as a returner, what you really have to try to try to do is think about what your opponent's best serve is. And, try, and at least for me, I try to take that away from them and make me beat and make them beat me in other spots. And it's difficult. But I think that the more matches you play against better servers, the more used to it you get. Who's got the best box of tricks when it comes to serving? Because we know the guys can slam them down there and get a speeding find having done so. Uh, But there's the spin. There's all sorts of different things. Who's got the best array of serves for you? I mean, there's so many guys out there now that have great serves. I mean, it's almost kind of a... a, um, you, you almost kind of need it now into the, in today's game. Uh, you, well, you need to be able to hold, right? Yeah. Um, so so most guys have great serves out there. Um, for me, obviously the best serve out there is probably John Isner. But I don't, you know, he's got an amazing serve. I don't like to use him as an example too often just because he has an, uh, an advantage that not everybody has, right? He's 6'10". Yeah. You know, so they're he, just by... Um, his angle that he's going to get on the serve is just too much. 
for me, I like to use Federer. I mean, I think he's got probably, for a guy my height, the best serve out there, um, in my opinion. I mean, Roddick, Roddick, obviously, when he was playing also. But I think for Federer, I mean, he just he hits every location. His serve percentage is in the 60s, 70% every match. Mm-hmm. And that's tough when you're thinking that, when you're saying that, you know, I mean, he's winning like 80% of his first serve points. And on top of that, he's serving 70% first serve uh, that's tough to beat. Wow, that's it is. that is tough to beat. That's pretty cool. So let's bring Chuck back in. Yeah, Chuck. Yeah. So we got Isner there at six foot ten. Just yeah. how much? And don't forget, he's throwing that ball up. Just how much an advantage has he got in terms of force that he can apply to a ball from that altitude? And and why? Why is it so much of an advantage when you have these taller players doing that? If you are trying to hit a ball into uh, the court in a legal serve, mm-hmm. you have to get it downward. Yeah. Right. You can whack it at some arbitrary speed, but if it doesn't land in a little box, then it doesn't count. So having the height allows someone like John to bring it down and your force going down gives you that extra advantage because now you are leveraging this way compared with say a six one six two player like Jared, right? John's got a six ten. That's eight extra inches uh, in the head, but that translates usually to some level in the arms as well. And so you're able to bring it down further. You snap harder. You get a longer lever arm, and you can transfer more force, and it's more likely to go downward. So, uh, conservatively, if you're talking physics, you might get. Anywhere from a 5% to a 15% advantage in the power that you'll be able to get on your serves. So it's, so about, it's about generating more power. You're, yeah. you're, absolutely, you're able to generate more force and therefore more velocity, which is, uh, that's pretty cool. A, but remember that Jared said, too, it's also a matter of location, right? right? where exactly you hit it, uh, and also the spin which is something we haven't talked about yet, but is probably almost, if not well, just... Well, let's, let's talk about let's spin. I mean, so, let's, let's put a little bit of spin on the subject. Yeah, why not? So, Jared, you know, spin and placement. Can you talk about those two things in a volley? Um, um, how you're using uh, topspin, backspin, and how you're actually uh, placement uh, of the ball on the court. Slice um, is kind of less of a factor in today's game i would say than it was maybe 30 years ago Mm -hmm. Um, just because this technology is different i'm sure you know uh chuck can 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 point to this also the strings are a lot different they grip the ball a lot more you know the modern day string so we're able players today are able to put a lot more spin on the ball um i just being that this is a science show i know that uh sampras in his day when you talk about revolutions per minute, I think Sampras's forehand had 1,800 when he played. Wow. And today, today guys are hitting, getting. I know. I think Federer's is like 3,700 RPMs. Wow. And and Nadal's up to 4,200. And that's all down to the strings, because I'm guessing uh, they're technically they're, they're quite equivalent. So the strings help, yes, and I think it's also a, a fact of. When you grow up with something, mm-hmm. you kind of know you you're used to it better. So uh, guys got used to the new strings and were able to then use the, those strings and put more spin on the ball and hit the ball with more spin. Right. Grips got a little bit different. Obviously, 30 years ago, you're talking about an eastern grip, which is almost holding it like a hammer. Yes. Um, picking up a racket like a hammer. Now we hold it a little bit with the face a little bit closed. Um, 
with semi-western or, or even western i would say most guys are probably in between semi-western and western um so that and, and it just allows you to hit the ball harder but also give yourself more margin um, because you can then have the ball ability for the ball to clear the net by three feet and then bring it down where back uh, back 30 years ago you hit the ball a lot lower the ball stayed a lot low and um, and you came to net which is you know putting back when you volley you put backspin on the ball and um, and to, in today's and, and a lot of, and the reason why guys don't come to net as much anymore is because players have the ability to to maneuver the ball around players so put spin on the ball and get it low or kind of uh, whip it around them so it's a lot it's a lot different now it's it's more about spin than power to be honest more about spin than power oh let's get chuck back in because yeah. that sounds a lot i mean jared's just discussed basically a curveball yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So that's we're just so we've got to find out from Chuck Luke Chuck, what is happening. Just how are the strings imparting so much spin onto this little fluffy ball? Well, let's just start with the ball itself. Right, it's a little bit more than two ounces heavy. It's made of a kind of flexible material and it's hollow. Right. It also has this fuzzy stuff around the outside. Yep. Right. And so the result is when you hit it, as long as you're not hitting it directly dead on there's going to be some rotation of the ball. That's just a natural occurrence of transfer of what we call angular momentum. Mm -hmm. As Bert is saying, depending on how the strings are, how the grip is, and the power to the deformation of the ball as it is being hit by the racket. All right, so right? compression of the shape of the ball itself. Yes. All of the things that remove spherical uh, shape cause additional spin. All the extra fuzzy stuff around the outside like the, say, the laces on a ball in baseball or something, causes additional interaction with the air, right. creating spin. And then the power that we were talking about that's much greater nowadays. Uh, Jared is 100% right when he says the slice is much less effective than it used to be. Uh, realize that when he's talking about uh, the professionals of the day now getting the ball to be able to spin at 3,000, 4,000 RPM, that's a car engine. Okay, so you got your tennis ball moving, spinning as fast as a car engine's spinning in the inside. Yeah. With it moving towards you. And then uh, you just add all these things together. It is essentially unpredictable uh, to some extent where the ball is going to go when it's spinning at that rate. It's really amazing. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. If you're facing something that's coming, because the harder you hit it, the more spin you can impart upon the ball. And if you know, and as Jared said, it's going to come over the net and it's just absolutely going to dive rapidly. How is a player mentally starting to vector their position across the court to deal with that? Because as you said, the, the reaction time is particularly limited. That's right. The human brain is still the greatest uh, physics calculator yet on land, or, or at sea for that matter, here on Earth. So really, when people like Jared are practicing, and Jared, you, you should respond to this directly if I'm wrong or, or right. When you're practicing, a lot of practice isn't just about hitting the ball. It's about seeing how the ball comes towards you. And you file that away into your neural net called your brain. And over time, over dozens, hundreds, thousands of repetitions, if you have good enough eyesight to see where the ball is coming off the racket and it's coming in your direction, you can see the spin to some extent. You can't calculate exactly how many RPM there are in the ball, but you can certainly calculate that it's heading in this direction that way. And then your body automatically moves in that direction faster than you can actually consciously calculate. Because you know now your neural net has been stored with enough information, the learning set, we call it, right, in artificial intelligence studies, to know where to go and give yourself that little extra fraction of a second to be able to react physically when the ball actually does hit the ground and come back up towards you. That's okay. amazing. So, Jared. Okay, Jared, return of serve here. Are, um, you, are, you actually, are you actually able to see spin, or have you trained that way? Um, yeah, I mean, Chuck's absolutely right. Like, when, when I, pra- I mean, I'm practicing three, four hours a day for tennis and then obviously doing off-court stuff in fitness. So um, for me, I you still need to follow the ball. Uh, for me, that's obviously natural because yeah. I've done it since I was four and a half years old. But I think if you get a guy out onto the court who's never played tennis before, the thing that, that trips him up the most is a second serve. It, I mean, they just look foolish because they think that the ball will come to them but it actually goes away from them much much like a curveball or a curveball but think of it if it's going the opposite direction mm-hmm. so it hits for and then explodes up instead of going right to them they've never seen it before so but for me i've obviously seen this countless times so i'm able to um to, I know what, what to expect, but obviously if I don't see the ball come off the racket very well, I don't know what type of spin is going to be on it. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things that I don't know, and I still make mistakes where I misread a ball or or whatever, and that causes me to miss. So you you and Chuck's absolutely right that you have to be spot on with with just looking at the ball. I mean that's why you have you look at the ball through contact, or most players look at the ball through contact, just so they can really see the ball. 
and feel where it's going to go and how it's coming off your opponent's racket. You know, if it's a miss hit, if not, what type and. I mean, you have to follow the ball. It's 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 imperative in it, tennis. It's interesting, Jared, because some of the things when we've discussed with baseball players, and particularly the batters, they train to identify certain types of ball, and that's a cognitive skill development. Do you do you practice? Because, like you said, you spend time on the court, you spend time off the court. You've got your conditioning, your nutritionists, and you've got game tape. Have you gone through that cognitive skill development with, with learning to read shots, learning to read spin? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up baseball. I remember I used to have a video uh, on baseball players, and and uh, Mark McGuire used to, I'm pretty sure it was Mark McGuire, used to have someone throw him tennis balls, and they would write little digits on the, on the ball, and he would have to tell the batting coach which number was on the ball. Was it a four, five, six, seven? So wow. it's obviously a skill that you have to practice. Um, in tennis, um, we do. I, I would say when I train off court, I do um, uh, you know, neurological adaptation, right? But that has to do a lot with moving because in baseball you're standing still to hit the ball. In tennis, you have to move, so your movement has to be, um, you know, connected to your uh, hand-eye coordination. So we do. A, we I do a, a little bit of that. Uh, well, I do a lot of that actually, and obviously you're getting so much of that already when you're practicing, right? Because mm-hmm. you the move, uh, see the ball, and, and and hit the ball. So there's a lot that's going on, uh, and it's going extremely fast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let's uh, let's switch courts, if I say. Yeah. Um, Jared, let me ask you, um, what is your favorite surface to play on, and and why? Um. You know, I think I play. I think my game translates pretty well to all surfaces. Um, my favorite surface is is, pro, is hard court. Um, mm-hmm. Playing, I that's a surface I've I've played the most on. Um, but I'm also, I mean, so that that's the game. That's what I'm most comfortable on. I would say, but I play well on clay. I spent two and a half years in Argentina playing, um, you know, almost exclusively on red clay. Wow. Yeah. I can I can play. I'm very good on, on clay. Hard court's my best surface. I don't have the most experience on grass, but um, right now, before Wimbledon, I'm I'm happy with my preparations. But hard court's my favorite surface. And Chuck, does it, what what does that do to yeah. to the sport? Uh, like when you change the surface, what what's the chief um, difference of playing on these different surfaces? Clay, hard court, grass. Imagine playing basketball on your backyard as opposed to on a court, right? It's as big a difference as that. Uh-huh. But play, grass, and hard, they all have different ways of absorbing the amount of energy that the ball hits with, and it imparts its own spin as well as it comes off, right, depending on the texture of the surface and yes. the hardness of the surface. Mm. So you can hit exactly the same serve at the French Open at Roland Garros, which is clay, or at Wimbledon, which is grass, or at the U.S. Open, which is hardcore, and the way it comes back up will be completely different. You really do have to adjust, which wow. is kind of the Grand Slam is such a special which thing. Which is why Jared's Jar- going to attest to this. When the guys win multiple majors mm-hmm. on all different so, so right. you win Roland Garros, you win Wimbledon, you win the U.S. Open, right. three different surfaces, and the same person walks away with all three trophies. That's a game that is ultimate yeah not just for one surface only it's as if you're a basketball player and you could both go in for the slam dunk and hit the three-pointer and do perfect free throws 
and play great defense all at the same time. Oh, well, yeah, you just described Kevin my Durant. game. You just described my game. Well, thanks. Kevin Durant, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Uh, clearly, you've been watching me play basketball. Oh, uh, yeah. Hey, Jared, let me just ask you this. So our friend John McEnroe uh, yes. made some comments. and yeah, Doesn't he have a book coming out? Uh, yeah, and he never has anything controversial to say, which is never. what I love about him. But, um, you know, I'm not going to get into his whole thing about Serena. But, Jared, I want to ask you, do you think you could take Serena in a three-set match? Uh, if I didn't, um, I could never face my, my, my peers ever again. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I like that. That's a nice diplomatic answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jared, do you have a question for Chuck Lou? Is there anything that's uh, bouncing around that you want to ask him? You know, I, I, I would say one of the, one of the biggest um, things that I think is, is, is quite interesting is just the re, is just the reaction time and in, in part in um, relation to the serve so obviously the serve is getting is there is there is there a limit to how fast the brain can process information does it get more um, m- more receptive if the ball is going faster so for example if it's going 150 miles an hour if you see that more could your brain get trained to react quicker to that? Um, and if so, by how much? And 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 if not, is there is there a kind of a, a restraint on how fast the brain can can pick up information, read it, and then react to it? Good question. Neuroscience continues to advance at a breakneck pace, so the answer that I give now may not be accurate tomorrow. But the mm-hmm. answer about the physics of the neuron is indeed that conscious thought at this moment does have an upper limit, and that upper limit doesn't seem like it can be pushed more than a few percent uh, in the coming period of time. But what can be pushed forward, Jared, is that uh, training that's unconscious, right? The thought that reacts directly from the their muscles and your eyes, which don't have to go through the thinking process, the, the rational thought prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex, but actually wires directly to the rest of your brain that gets your body into motion. So, that part can be trained. And the thing is, we don't really know yet how that part is optimally trained. The things that you described, just looking at serves hours and hours a day and moving to them and reacting to them and other kinds of things, they seem to help, but the exact amount is still uncertain. And so that next breakthrough of neuroscience will get us to that next point. But the bottom line really is that uh, nowadays, as you said, with just even one or two break opportunities per match sometimes, right? you uh, just have to get lucky enough or get, not even lucky, but train that tiny, tiny little bit, which can make a big difference in the overall course of the match. Wow. Very cool. So there's hope. There's hope. <laughs> there's hope. And you don't have to be a Jedi. You could actually do all this yourself. Yeah. So that's cool. It's a great question, Jared. Yeah, it hey, is. Um, you know, Fabulous. We're up against the break, right? We are. We are up against the break. We're sorry to uh, lose you, but we wish you the very best of luck with your career, young man. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. We'll, we'll be watching and rooting for you, Jared, man. Sure. Keep it up, brother. I, I appreciate all right. it. Keep all right. practicing. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to have you on the show again. Okay, man? Sounds great. I look forward to being back. All right. You Take superstar. care. Thank you. And to Charles Liu, as always, a superstar. Yeah. Yep. This guy's a, 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 a the man in the Hawaiian shirt. The we si- are so lucky. <laughs> Science of Superman. There you yeah. go. All right. Sir, always land, gentlemen. Have a great day.
All right. There you go. That's how nice these people are. So we are going to take that break. Um, if you've enjoyed Jared and Charles, stick around because we will be taking a look at the evolution of the tennis racket. And there has been plenty. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. I'm Gary O'Reilly. I'm Chuck Nice. And this, of course, is Playing With Science, and we're talking about the physics of tennis, and we're actually having a really good time, Absolutely. which is no surprise now, isn't yes, it? Sir. It is, yeah. Joining us now by video call is Ron Rochi, Advanced Innovation Manager at Wilson. Ron, great for joining us. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Such a pleasure. Very All right, cool. let's, let's get on to the rackets. I mean, being a man of a certain vintage, uh, rackets were made of wood. And that goes back quite some time. What was the step up from coming away from wooden rackets and, and what did it actually bring to the game? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're right. Rackets historically have been made of wood. Um, but somewhere around the late 60s, uh, the, the leap was made to steel. Okay. And, what, and what steel gave us was the ability to get rid of some of the weight so they got a little bit lighter. Uh, but the downside, uh, and I have one right here, the downside is that the head of the racket still remained very small. Mm-hmm. So it was about the same size as a wooden racket. So players got a little benefit. It got a little lighter, but it wasn't a huge leap forward. With the steel frames, you get a little bit more strength. And therefore, is it right that you can get tighter strings and that then affects the type of game that you can play with that particular racket? Yeah, that's true, but the the main benefit of the steel was that the racket got a little lighter and a little stiffer. Oh. And so by getting stiffer, players got a little more power with an easier way to get it. Mhm. So now what are most rackets made of now? Is it more is it more like some kind of composite or is it more carbon fiber or what is it? Yeah, so you actually missed one. So we had the steel, right? Um, which which was a, you know, a step forward. And then shortly thereafter, we got into an era where we got aluminum rackets. Ah, yeah, I remember that. Oh, that now, wonderful thing, alu- aluminum. Aluminium, you mean? Aluminium, yes. Don't forget I'm British, Ron. <laughs> He's British, so it's... <laughs> but that's a bigger head. We, I mean, our listeners can't see this, but Ron is holding up uh, an aluminum, thank you, framed racket, and it's a larger head on the racket. Is that right? Right. So going from steel to aluminum, you're cutting a lot of weight out, which then enabled the racket designers to create these larger head sizes. Mm. That was really a big leap forward because now the average player can get this larger headed racket and actually have some success on the tennis court. Right. Does that make the sweet spot that we've heard so much about that much bigger on the racket? Yeah, for sure. It creates a larger, more powerful sweet spot. And that really contributed to the tennis boom in the early 70s. Okay, that makes sense. Doesn't it? Yeah. There was controversy at the time when the larger head came out because the devotee of the the smaller head racket said it was akin to cheating. But it has been fully embraced right now, hasn't it? Absolutely. There's no question. So where are we now? Chuck was saying we've got the, the graphite... Uh, carbon fiber rackets, but am I am I wrong in thinking it's not just one thing? It's a composite of several different elements or materials. Yes. Yeah, so the the next major leap forward was to the composite rackets or carbon fiber or what a lot of people just call graphite rackets. Yeah. And 
So this, again, took a lot of weight out, got the rackets very stiff, and put the rackets in a very lightweight category. So if you're just playing tennis, this is so easy to play compared to the rackets of yesterday. And so while we're still in the construction of the racket, I remember when, and I don't know if this was just a wives' tale or something where people would say like, oh, yeah, tennis strings are made of cat guts. So no, that's right. One, is that true? And two, what are they made of now? And three, are there any cats like strays wandering around Wilson right now that are missing? <laughs> you went there, didn't you? You went there. Wow, that's uh, yeah. Okay, let me clear this up once and for all. Please, that isn't that is a myth. Okay, Cat, cats were never used to produce tennis string. Okay, in in fact. The string that you're referring to is called natural gut, which I have a set here. Okay. Uh, This particular string is made from the intestine, the intestine lining of cows. Ah, well, that's so much better than cats because cows are delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing goes to waste. There you go. (laughs) So here's a very little known fact. This one set of string that I'm holding, this one set that goes into a tennis racket, it takes three cows to make this one set of string. Now, why is that? Because uh, well, they're not very good with their hoofs. Yeah. <laughs> Don't start. Excellent. <laughs> so, so, so what does that do to hitting the ball? But, but the difference between the, the cow intestine and the synthetic material that's used now. Well, they're both still very popular. Uh, oh, really? In fact, a lot of players put both in the same racket. Interesting. Oh, what one going the so, main string and one the cross string? Correct. Oh, how interesting. So that's called a hybrid. And you get sort of the benefits of both products. A natural gut component and a monofilament component in the same racket. Well, and now why is that? Does that is there some kind of tempered quality that one of these strings has that will offer balance instead of using both or is it just some kind of like um like i don't know superstition like i gotta have guts and synthetic or i can't win like what what would make you do that well it's really a performance benefit so the natural gut feels great when you impact the ball it provides a lot of feel and a lot of power okay but the downside is it loses tension pretty quickly, and it's susceptible to moisture. So if uh, you're playing on a humid day, it's going to lose tension pretty quickly. Gotcha. The monofilament string, on the other hand, doesn't have a lot of feel, but it doesn't lose tension. So when you combine the two, you sort of get this magic combination of pretty good feel, and I keep the same tension for a longer period of time. Does it actually depend on an individual player's game, the style of game that they bring? that will depend on the nature of the strings, whether they're 100% synthetic or they become, as you said, a hybrid racket? Yeah, there's there's thousands of strings on the market, and uh-huh. some are engineered towards certain styles of play. So whatever your normal swing or your natural swing is like, um, there's going to be sort of products geared towards you. So 
it's, you know, one thing is difficult to find the right tennis racket to play. Mm -hmm. But even when you do that, now you got to go to the next step and you got to find the right string to put in that tennis racket. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, I've seen, uh, I don't play, but my brother is just a huge, I mean, I can't tell you, uh, uh, just an avid player. And when I'm out on the courts just watching these guys play, I see these different shaped heads. Some are more oval. Some are slightly squared at the top. I mean, they all seem to have the same shaft and all that. But what is up with the shape of the head and what allows you on a professional level? Are there any restrictions to how the tennis racket can be constructed? Well, that's a lot in that question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was I was really just being curious. I didn't realize what he wants to do is beat his brother at tennis. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he's looking for and, any angle he can get. And that's the part I didn't put in. Like, and how can I beat my brother at tennis, <laughs> which will never happen? But so, so my question is, how long is the show? <laughs> oh wow! So it's that <laughs> wow. it's that involved, so, huh? What so do you I, got? This, Bring it on! This, all right. So the you know generally speaking at the professional level everybody uses about the same head size. They're all right around a hundred square inches. Um, some are, you know, a few players are a little bigger, a few players a little smaller, but generally speaking, they're all about the same size head. Uh, that size is very much below the actual limit. It could be. So they're at a hundred square inches. Uh, the ITF our governing body sort of limits the head size to 134 square inches. Okay. So no one's ever going to play that big of a racket professionally. So it, it, the rule doesn't really come into play that much. Why wouldn't they now, play a racket as, that size? Just to clear that up. Why wouldn't you go to a larger racket head? It would be too powerful for them. Ah, okay. Oh, really? So do yes. you lose control? Is that the deal? You lose control when you have that larger head? Uh, is that it? Well, again, a professional player who swings very aggressively at the ball, right. that racket's just going to give them so much power, yes, they will lose all the control of directing the ball. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. This, this sounds like the game Chuck wants to watch. Uh, now, by the way, so part of what we do on this show is uh, no matter who we talk to, athlete or expert, I figure out a way to change that sport yes. so it can be more to my liking. And I have to tell you, Ron, what you just said, my new rule is that every player must play with a 134 square inch head so that I can watch balls fly into the stands and hit people in the forehead that to me is a much better sport i want to see that at wimbledon see, on, this, on nbc this is what i have to work with we've had run so as you know we've had no breaks nascar right no break nascar come on ron yeah tell me that's not a tell me you don't want to watch no break nascar and he, and he wants to see cyborgs play golf so as you can see 600 yard drives it's this is what i deal with i think my ideas are awesome okay yeah. um by the way we uh we spoke to um our friend who's a physicist uh, for uh eric goff who uh, yes. mo does modeling for the tour de france i found out that they have brakes i'm like take the brakes off the tour de france so yeah. that when they're coming down the mountain i mean that's yeah. the part i want to watch yeah so i'm telling you right now 134 square inch racket heads on all that's um and and then you get federer Making a line drive, breaking a camera lens. We'll be back. Technical difficulties. I'm staying tuned. 
<laughs> really, it's just as well Chuck's oh. brother plays and not Chuck. All right, anyway. All right, anyway look, enough of that silliness. Yeah, okay, so Ron, here we go. Um, <laughs> you've got a racket right now where you have, okay, you have played with the alignment of the strings in the sense that you have the same amount of main strings that are going from shaft to the racket through the racket head, but you've diminished the number of cross strings. Now that must be for some really good scientific reasons. Could you explain? Yes, that's called spin effect technology. All right. And it's a technology where uh, you can actually use, again, your normal swing that you play tennis with, mm -hmm. but because of the string configuration and the spaces between them, you will get up to 22% more spin on the ball. Oh, wow. Wow. Spin is critical, guys. Spin's big. It's everything. When you... When you spin the ball, it stays in the court. You can control much better what your shot's going to do. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. And I know how important spin is. I used to work in the White House. No, you didn't. <laughs> didn't believe a word. <laughs> so, when, because you have a stable of such elite top-end tennis professionals, is this the sort of thing they've come back to you as a racket supplier, manufacturer, and said, I need something that gives me X amount of more spin. And, and have they colluded with you to develop this kind of uh, product, this kind of racket? Great question. How much do you use your talent to develop your technology? We work with our players very closely to develop technologies. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Grigor Dimitrov, who uh, unfortunately lost to Roger Federer the other day, uh, yay Roger, uh, yes. He actually plays spin effect technology. So it was on court at Wimbledon on display. Yeah. So to answer the question, of course, you know, we're, we're constantly working uh, with our players. One of the players that we work the most with is Serena Williams. Uh, she and I now, have who, a standing. Who is she? I'm sorry. Can you tell me who that is? Ignore him. That, it's a little <laughs> known player from the U.S. Okay. You might not have heard of her. All right, good. I, th I, I think she won a challenger event somewhere along the line. Well, I'm glad but, that you guys are developing new talent. <laughs> <laughs> we hope it pays off in her case. Yes. She well, can yeah, be good. She we, can yes, be good. yes, we yeah. do hope so. It's always good to take a gamble on people, Ron. <laughs> so, Okay. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us that might be arriving to a tennis racket sometime soon? Uh, hold on one second. That's I'm looking a off camera here. That's a big no. You know it. <laughs> hold on, hold on. What can I tell them? What can I tell them? Uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of corporate speak. Uh, well, I can tell you this. There are, uh, I, you know, I've been doing this a long time at Wilson, and there are some interesting things on the horizon that are really going to make players excited about new technology and tennis rackets. Now who works in the White House? Ron, talk about spin. I, absolutely. I respect that. <laughs> See, what it means now is if, if our listeners are interested in tennis and they like the idea of spin effect that your configuration of the racket head brings them, they've only got to stay tuned and keep a weather eye out on tennis courts to see what your 
what your team of technicians are going to bring forward next. So that's that's the sort of thing that we like here on this show. The way that science, the way that technology is being applied to the benefit of not just elite athletes, but to being rolled out down to just guys who play tennis for fun at the weekend. It's uh, it's just wonderful the way that sport gets a chance to benefit from all of these ideas and knowledge and, and how it kind of evolves together in a lovely symbiosis. There you go. Oh, my word yeah, for the so- day. So before you cut me off, can I, uh, I'll mention a technology that uh, your listeners might find interesting. Please do. So after Spinifect technology, we sort of rolled out a material technology in some of our products, uh, which was actually from a uh, Department of Defense contractor that we partnered with. Nice. And the, mater- the material is called countervail. Ooh. One word, countervail. Okay. And this is as close to a magic material that I've seen in a very long time. Um, this is geared towards any player, whether you're just the average Joe or playing on tour. Uh, this material, in a very friendly way, helps your body with the impacts and the shocks and the vibration of playing tennis. Um, it's considerate more of like a a Gatorade for your racket, if you will, an energy bar where it's going to help you absorb all those impacts and shocks. And you can actually play longer and with less discomfort uh, in your in your life. You know, that makes that makes perfect sense because there is a new technology that takes the opposite of what you just said to fatigue your muscles quicker. So, for instance, consider doing an exercise while standing on a vibrating plate. Yes. It fatigues your muscles, like, by a significant percentage more. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is reducing that vibration actually does the opposite. So instead of fatiguing your muscles, which we know in certain workouts, that, that actually uh, vibration fatigues your muscles even more. By reducing that, you give the player more longevity. That's absolutely right. That's awesome, isn't it? Well, that's and, so. I and mean, we noticed this with uh, a lot of the younger players. Yeah. Okay. Uh, at the at the academies, the twelve and fourteen year olds, there was this concept of overtraining. These right. Young players were just getting injured and couldn't play tennis because they were hitting so many balls and playing so many hours, and that really led us to sort of finding material that could help in that in those cases. Interesting. That's Fabulous. great stuff. The, the, yeah, that is because obviously I hadn't thought about it, but baseball hitters, guys who play tennis, the vibration through the racket, if you're not hitting it perfectly each time on that point of percussion, that sweet spot, you are going to suffer from that and the, the muscle strength must diminish according. Right. So right. I applaud you for, for being able to partner with someone like that and bring it forward. Ron, we're going to have to let you go and I'm, I'm really quite sad because... Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, fabulous. We must bring you back, sir. Would you do that? I would, I'd be happy to anytime. Well, oh, man, that's great. We'll take you up. Been a pleasure. Thank you to Ron Rochi from Wilson Tennis. Been an absolute pleasure. I learned a lot. Countervail. Yeah. Countervail. I was thinking some point there was a, a cloak of invisibility, but it wasn't that, was it? It was something more practical. No, that's Harry Potter. Yes. I know you're British, but calm down. No. <laughs> I'm calm. I'm there. I'm back in the room. No, that's uh, that really is good stuff, and I love that. That makes sense. I'm going to have to buy my brother a racket that does just the opposite, and, and then I'll play him. And then... Jared Donaldson. 
yeah. a player who got a, a real chance of emerging as a, an up and well, he's already an up and coming men's oh, yeah. player he's, in, he's in the US tennis. So yeah. great to have him on board. Unfortunately, at the time that people will hear this, he will have lost in Wimbledon. Yeah. But there we go. That's it for now. Well, that's our show. That is uh, our show. I hope you've enjoyed it. A brief look, an all too brief look at the wonderful game of tennis and the physics therein. So, from me, Gary O'Reilly. And me, Chuck Nice. It's goodbye from Playing With Science. We'll see you all soon.